I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. We are on Season 1, Episode 49, this time on the death of Jesus from John chapter 19, starting with verse 25. We are nearing the end of our journey through the Gospel of John, and today we really reach a pinnacle passage about the death of Jesus. I mean, we've already gone through his betrayal and his trials, and now we're looking at his death experience and how it is for us our saving moment because of his substitutionary atonement for our sins, and we'll talk more on that later. First, let's jump into a look around the cross as John kind of paints a picture for us of this austere tableau. It's John 19, verses 25 through 42. And for this passage, I'm relying on the work of Ray Stedman as my guide. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, as the other scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. John is standing at the foot of the cross with the women who are wailing over this terrible torture that's going on. I think it's amazing that the first thing John, the thing he could never forget about that awful event, were the tender words Jesus had for his mother. The loving concern with which Jesus deals with his own mother, woman, here is your son. 
If you remember back in episode 5 on the wedding in Cana, that's in John chapter 2, Jesus uses the same word for, for mother back there. In that case, Mary was kind of encouraging Jesus to reveal his messianic calling by doing a miracle and provide more wine like he was some divine caterer. In chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus said, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Woman. In Jesus, it sounds like, uh, or in English, it sounds like Jesus is getting testy with Mary, but that's not the case. Uh, the word woman here, uh, even though it kind of sounds like an insult, that's not what it is. The word woman is, is dunai, and it's a very endearing term. It's the same word Caesar Augustus used of the love of his life, Cleopatra. It's the same word Jesus used here when he was dying on the cross, and he gave his mother Mary into the care of the Apostle John. Verse 26, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. These are very tender words. I think it's incredible to think of the terrible agony that Jesus has been going through for hours, and yet despite his own pain and anguish, he's thinking about who is going to care for his mom. Who's going to guard her and keep her into old age? He could have passed that responsibility on to one of his biological brothers. Mary had four other sons who could have taken care of her, probably certainly would have. But at this point, none of them have embraced Jesus as the Messiah. And that didn't happen until after the resurrection. So Jesus here gives the job to his disciple John. John could give Mary what her biological sons could not at that moment, a compassionate understanding of her sorrow and a God-given comfort in this terrible hour. A further remarkable thing is that John's own mother was standing right there at the cross. The second woman mentioned here is his mother's sister. It's the mother of James and John, who were cousins of Jesus. Yet Jesus gives his mother to John. And John accepts the responsibility and takes her into his own home. What a beautiful revelation this is of Jesus' understanding of Mary's need I can't think of a more beautiful passage for describing a son's love for his mother. Next, there comes a word revealing the terrible anguish and physical agony of the cross where Jesus says, I'm thirsty. You know, I've read that scientists uh, say thirst is the most agonizing of all pains. A pinched nerve, a wound, an ache caused by some bodily malfunction, all those can be tremendously painful, but there's nothing more terrible to bear than thirst because it's as though every cell in the body cries out for relief and the pain gets worse and worse as time goes by. There's nothing remarkable revealed here. Uh, John just records that Jesus cried out, I thirst, only because it was necessary to do so to fulfill the scripture. In other words, it clearly implies that if Jesus had not been required to fulfill scripture, he may not have borne this agony of thirst without a single word of complaint. But in order to faithfully do what God said should be done, our Lord kind of shows his anguish by crying out, I am thirsty. Even on the cross, Jesus was intentionally putting himself into the role of being that long-awaited Messiah. Then John records the last word from the cross, a word of triumph and achievement, the word, it is finished. It's all one word in the Greek, tetelestai. And there's relief in that word. The agony is over. The terrible ordeal is done. But there's pride in the word as well. The race is won. The work is completed. The enemy is defeated. In those mysterious three hours when the sun hid its face and a strange darkness covered the whole land, Jesus cried out these terrible cries. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
That's Matthew 27, 46. It was then that he was involved in a fearful grapple with the power of evil. But now that struggle is over. The way to the heart of God is achieved. The writer of Hebrews describes this in these words. He says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. This is all completed now. Jesus had experienced the absence of God the Father. He experienced that absence for the very first and the only time in all eternity. The oneness of the Trinity is clouded over by his actions as the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus on the cross experiences hell for us while he was there. Not just the physical torture, but actually much more importantly, the pain of the separation from the Father. That was his atoning work. He took our punishment for us. When the work was over, when the foundations of the redemption were were fully laid, Jesus could then cry out with a loud voice, It is finished. You should note that tetelestai is a word from the ancient Olympics. It's the word runners would shout as they crossed the finish line. It was a shout of victory, of triumph, of achievement. It wasn't that Jesus is saying, Well, thank God that's over, it's finished. No, it was a shout of victory that Jesus gave as he died. I won. I did it. I finished the purpose for which I came. Salvation was accomplished for us as Jesus took his last breath. And then as John records, he dismissed his spirit or he gave up his spirit. Jesus once said that it was not required that he ever die. John 10, 18, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it again. Paul tells us that he became obedient unto death in Philippians 2, 8. That could never be said of any of us as we have no choice in the matter. When our time comes, we have to die. But Jesus did not. He became obedient unto death and surrendered his spirit, dismissed it, and fell unto death. John goes on to give another prophecy of scripture being fulfilled. Verse 31. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the second. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony And his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. John here wants us to understand that it is impossible to go against scripture. It's impossible to kind of break the scripture. Jesus once said, Scripture cannot be set aside or broken in John 10, 35. Again and again through his account, we have this word repeated. The Scripture was fulfilled or it was to fulfill the Scripture. And here are two more instances where Scripture is clearly being fulfilled. Jesus' bones were not broken and his side was pierced with a spear. The first is from Psalm 34, 20, which ties the Messiah to the Passover lamb from Exodus 12, 46. That he was pierced comes from the book of Isaiah 53, verse 5. See, John wants us to understand that Jesus was really dead. This is his purpose as saying that you also may believe. 
because there were some skeptics back then and still today who repeat it. They say that Jesus, you know, didn't really die on the cross, that Jesus only fainted. He swooned on the cross. He fooled the guards into thinking he was dead and that when they put his body in the cold tomb, he was somehow, you know, kind of in a coma. But in the coolness of the tomb, he was revived and came back, beat up a couple of guards, pushed away to Big Rock and walked away. Now, the British novelist D.H. Lawrence wrote a novel with that heresy as its plot called The Man Who Died. And Martin Scorsese's movie, The Last Temptation of the Christ, uh, suggested it too. But notice how John is careful here to take an oath, a solemn vow that his testimony is true. That when the soldier pierced the side of Jesus, pierced, he pierced the pericardium around the heart so that his blood, which had already separated into plasma and hemoglobin, came pouring out together. Now that only happens when the circulation has stopped and death has occurred. So it's a fanciful thing for people to believe Jesus somehow just walked away from the cross. I mean, these Roman soldiers, they were experts at this. They knew all the tricks. That's why they were going around to break the legs of the men who were still left on the cross, because it would speed their deaths. They would no longer be able to push themselves up and to take a breath, because, you know, when you're crucified like that, you rely on the, the uh, spike through your feet in order to push yourself up and get breath. And with your legs broken, you can't do that, so you suffocate a little bit quicker. And so when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They didn't need to break his legs. But just to be sure, what'd they do? They stabbed him through the rib cage right into the heart. There was no walking away from that. That was no fainting accident. John quickly moves to the care for Jesus' body. It's remarkable that these two secret disciples, who were afraid to confess Jesus while he was alive, did show their faith now that he was dead. In death, they did what they could not do during his life, openly acknowledging that they belonged to him. <coughs> With boldness, uh, Joseph goes to Pilate and asks for his body. And while Nicodemus, at great expense, gathers the burial spices, they lovingly wash the body of Jesus and wrap it with a cloth, intersperse the spices and prepare him for burial. And they do not care who sees them doing it. Knowing John's sensitivity to the use of symbols, it's almost certain that he intends for us to see here three remarkable, eloquent symbols surrounding the burial of Jesus. Jesus was buried in a garden, in a tomb where no one had ever been placed before, and that it was near to the place of the cross. What is John conveying by this? Well, it's striking that the Bible records that sin began in a garden, in the Garden of Eden, when the serpent got to Eve and then to Adam, and sin found its genesis. I'm sure John has this in mind as he records that sin met its conqueror also in a garden, that where Jesus entered into death, he also conquered sin and loosed its hold upon our race. And also in that Garden of Eden, humankind entered into an experience he'd never been before. He entered into death. In Romans 5, Paul declares, Death came by sin, and death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Therefore, all have died. Romans 5.12 Death came into our race in the Garden of Eden. But here in the Garden of Jerusalem was a new tomb where no one had ever lain. And in that new tomb, death was conquered for the first time. This is clearly an eloquent testimony from the pen of John. Some of you have heard this story before, but it fits in so well, I just felt like I needed to tell it again. Was I, when I was about five years old, my family and I were involved in a head-on collision with a drunk driver. 
At that time, my family lived in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. We had been visiting my grandfather's dairy farm that was about an hour or so west of Milwaukee, kind of in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. So we were on our way back. It was kind of late in the afternoon. We were on a two-lane road going up and down, kind of with the rolling terrain. My dad was driving. My brother and sister were both in the back seat asleep, and I was on my mom's lap in the front seat passenger side. Now, you have to remember that this was a long time ago. There were no factory-installed seat belts in the car. There were no such things as child safety seats or anything like that. I just sat on my mom's lap. And as we came over one of those hills, a drunk driver had drifted into our lane, and he hit us head-on. Now, I have no memory of the crash. All I can remember is the shock and the fear I felt of seeing myself literally, and I mean literally, covered with blood from head to toe. What I didn't realize until much later was that the blood wasn't actually mine. It was my mother's blood. When she saw that the car was coming to ram us, you know, time seemingly slips into slow motion in those moments. But what she did was she curled herself around me. She curled her larger body around my smaller frame so that it was her body that hit the dashboard. It was her head that shattered the windshield. She took the impact of the collision for me, so that I would be saved. In a sense, being covered with my mother's blood is a beautiful reminder of the intensity of her love for me. But in a similar and infinitely more significant way, Jesus took the impact of my sins and yours when he shed his blood on the cross for us. He wrapped himself around us. He experienced hell so that we wouldn't have to. He experienced the punishment of sin so that we didn't have to. The cross reminds us that Through God's amazing love, we were redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1.18. The blood is the strongest language God could have used. It's the most precious thing he could give, the highest price he could pay, that out of love for you and for me and for the whole world, Jesus gave his blood. Thankfully, my mother uh, survived her injuries, but her selfless action kind of demonstrates what sacrificial love is really all about. So I hope you'll think about Jesus' love for you as you read through this wonderful passage, the sacrifice he made for you, how he wrapped himself around you and took the impact for your sin so that you wouldn't have to. I hope that you'll remember his saving work on your behalf and remember that it's finished. He's done it all. Have a great week.